Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, I would invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44. So Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44. It's... Uh, it's interesting. It uh, looks like there's a lot of new faces out here this morning, though it may not necessarily be the case. <laughs> a lot of newly recognizable faces. Um, as you're turning there, I want to ask a question. And the question is this. What, what is Christian change? How does it happen? What is it and how does it happen? Christians are called to change. Anybody who doesn't want to change, you're not going to make a good Christian. You're not going to be able to be a Christian because the whole of the Christian life is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Putting off the old man, putting on the new. It's a process of constant change where we pass from being in darkness where we were to being in light. We were in darkness. We're, we're in light before God, and in a very real way, He is pruning and cutting and sanctifying us. Now, how does that happen? Does it happen by, I read the Bible, I say, okay, it says I need to be patient, so be more patient, be more patient, and you just think about being more patient. Is that how it works? That's not how it works. Because anybody can do that. That's not becoming patient as a Christian. Because if you're going to become patient as a Christian, everything is bound up in the gospel and Christ and the glory of God. God gets no glory when somebody tries really hard to be patient apart from Him. In fact, if that's how you strive to do anything in the Christian life, put sin to death, be patient, do this, do that, all you're going to do is become a legalist. Because it's all going to be about your hard work and your effort, totally devoid of the work of Christ. Now, as a Christian wants to grow in godliness, in all of these things, this is why I, I like to say, if you are growing as a Christian, you are not growing in morality, you're not becoming better at this or that, you are growing in Christ-likeness. Because you can't grow in Christ-likeness apart from Christ. And you have to have in your mind the focus on Him. Because that's who you're trying to become like. That's the example you're laboring to follow. You want to be like Jesus Christ. So we can say like Paul, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but great, uh, Christ in me. And it is Christ working in us. And if you want to grow in the Christian life and you want to change, that happens and you are empowered to do so by the degree that you know your Lord and you love your Lord. To the degree you recognize what He has done for you, that's the degree to which you will grow. That's where the motivation will come from. By the worship and the admiration and the love and the knowledge that you have of Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew 27. 39 through 44, we're going to focus in on one aspect, one thing that Jesus did. You might not have noticed in this passage before, but this is the final temptation of Jesus Christ. 
here on the cross in verses 39, Matthew 27, 39 through 44, the final temptation. Let's read together. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down off of that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were, with, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us a greater view of your Son, Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our all. And I pray, Lord, that this would become, although it is true, Lord, that it would become truer and played out more in our lives as we grow and as we walk and that we would look to your Son to be filled, that we would look to your Son to know what it means to be a Christian. He is our example. Lord, help us to walk in His footsteps. And I pray this morning, Lord, that You would take the Word and the truth of Your Word and You would inscribe it on our hearts with a pen of iron that it would not be forgotten. Because, Lord, we are so quick to forget. We are so quick to look for help in other places. Lord, break those other places and let them crumble before our eyes so that we might trust wholly in You. That we wouldn't look to our own strength. That we wouldn't look to just changing our circumstances. Lord, I pray that heart work would be done today in Your people. Thank You, Father, for Your help. Lord, thank You. All glory to your name. Amen. Capital punishment in ancient times was uh, actually until very recently in France, up until the 70s. The capital punishment was always a very public affair. And it was done publicly in order to discourage others from committing the same crimes. You would... Think twice about stealing something if you see the guillotine come down and chop off somebody's head for doing it. Nowhere in history was this probably truer, the, the dissuasive effect of capital punishment than with crucifixion. Those who were condemned to die this way were lifted up as an example to what would happen to anyone who dared to defy the Roman Empire. And so it was never done in private. It was never done hidden away. It was always done in places like outside of the city gates where everyone was going in or out or in the middle of the market square where everyone could see or along busy streets and intersections and highways where there was a lot of traffic. When someone was crucified, one of the messages being put out by those performing it was, we want everyone to see so that no one will do what they've done. And this is why Jesus was crucified where he was. He was crucified to be a public spectacle. 
He was lifted up to warn everyone who saw him, this is what happens to criminals. You don't want to end up like him. And you know, as well as I know, there's a lot more happening here than just a warning not to defy the defunct Roman Empire. You know the spiritual meaning behind what's happening here. And in a sense, you can say Jesus was lifted up as a warning to all of us. A warning to anyone about what would happen to somebody who would defy the living God. Not that they would endure physical suffering, not that they would be crucified or tortured, but all of the spiritual realities that this crucifixion is putting on display, all of those things will happen to anyone who defies and rejects the Lord. All of those cursings will fall down on anyone who does not repent and believe the gospel. As Christ was cursed for sin, so will all who continue in sin be cursed. But could you learn that from walking down the road and seeing the cross on that Friday morning? Could you look at Jesus being crucified and say, He's dying for the sins of the world. There's divine punishment happening here. Probably not. Which is why Paul charges us, even warns us, how will they know unless they hear? How will people know what the cross is all about unless somebody goes and tells them? It's, it's, it's not enough just to, just to point to the cross and say Jesus died without any explanation of what's going on there. I think, of, I think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember the story. The eunuch is, is riding and he's reading out loud. Everyone read aloud in those days. And he's reading Isaiah. And Philip comes up alongside the chariot and says, What are you reading? Isaiah 53. You understand what it means? You remember the uh, eunuch's answer? How can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? So Philip hops up in the chariot and explains to the Ethiopian eunuch what's happening. Because people can't know unless they hear. And when they hear, maybe they can understand, but they cannot believe unless the Spirit of the Lord works. One of the reasons this is important is because it reminds us of our special privilege. We've been given the honor and the responsibility to tell other people. Anyone, ask anybody out in the streets and they're going to say, yeah, Jesus was crucified, I know really happened, most of them. They're not going to know what it means. We've been given the task as ambassadors of Christ to explain what happened on the cross. To tell others, this is why He died. This is how you need to respond to it. The other reason I point this out is because when you read the story, nobody who was seeing what happened on the cross understood what was going on. Not even the disciples at this point understood what was going on. Certainly, no one passing by did. And far from compassion, far from showing Him kindness, they spoke to Him with derision. They saw the Lord on the cross. They saw a man dying. They didn't know. They didn't care. Who is this Jesus from Galilee? And so they mock Him and they slandered Him for sport. It was a, a cruel game to them to mock a criminal condemned to die. 
These are just people passing by. They don't know anything about what's going on. This might be the first time they ever see Jesus. And then there were the scribes and the Pharisees gathered around like vultures, and they don't even address the Lord. They're, they're speaking to one another in stage whispers loud enough so that everyone, including the Lord, can hear them. And they belittle Him, and they mock Him, and they mock Him in His life, and now they mock Him in His death. And even the criminals on His right and on His left, they join in. Though later one would repent. But for those who did this awful act, it wasn't enough just to condemn Jesus. Now they have to degrade Him. It's not enough to kill the innocent man. I mean, you would think there would be some kind of maybe remorse for what they've done. Maybe one of the scribes of the Pharisees would be there at the cross thinking, maybe we shouldn't have done this. and doesn't seem to be any of that. They taunt Him and they slander Him. They make fun of Him. They are, they are so self-satisfied with what they've done. This just adds to the misery of the cross. I mean, it's one thing to die. It's another thing to die being tortured. It's another thing to die tortured and publicly humiliated and worse to be relentlessly mocked. I mean, imagine the last thing you hear as you die unjustly, people insulting you with cruelties. People laughing because they are so happy that you are dead. That's what's happening here at the cross. The cruelty knows no bounds. These people cannot stop doing evil to the Lord. They cannot help themselves but increase His misery. But again, that's far from all that's happening here in verses 39 through 44. Once more, Matthew's Gospel is taking us much deeper than just the cruelty of the crowd. In fact, the words of the scribes and the Pharisees, the words of those passing by and all their cruelties, listen, that really isn't even the point of this passage. Because they're not just insults. And they're not merely mockery. This is, this is a sinister thing happening here. It's a, it's a twisting of the knife that was driven in and is a deliberate provoking of the Lord Jesus in an attempt to bring Him down off of the cross. And it's not done by just throwing abuses at Him, but by clouding His mind and assaulting Him with fear and trembling and doubts so that He will abandon His mission, so that He will abort the cross and come down. This is what you hear in verses 39 through 44. It is His, the Lord's, final temptation. At the cross, with the fate of the world in the balance, and never was that statement truer. With the stakes so high. Have you ever read this passage and wondered where the devil is? I mean, he's nearby. He has to be. But where is he? He had a hand in helping Judas, sure. But where did he go after that? Was he in the crowd that was shouting crucify him? Is he with the Sanhedrin guiding the corrupt and twisted trial? Is he on the steps of the Praetorium with Pilate? Or is he in the cruelty of the crucifiers? You wonder, where is he? 
I know he's here somewhere. Where? Well, the answer is he's not in any of those places. Very often, and especially today, Christians underestimate the danger and the craftiness that the devil poses for them. Well, we think of his work as, as nightmarish things, right? Things that come out of horror movies, uh, terrors and deformities and possessions and the like. Now, it may surprise you that here in Scripture, throughout the Bible, really, our nemesis is never described as grotesque. You know, the number one description given to the devil is cunning, crafty, shrewd, almost clandestine. He was, after all, the craftiest or the most cunning of all creatures. And here at the cross, his guile is on full display. He doesn't come with so-called demonic displays of force. He doesn't come with the threat of pain. He doesn't come with the gavel of injustice. Now, if you want to find his activity on that afternoon, you find it right here in what we just read. You find it in those passing by and in the voice of the condemned and in the voice of the scribes and the Pharisees. And though they are mocking and jesting, he is at work at a far more deep and devious level. He is attacking Christ at the very core of who He is. He is stripping hope away. And with all His might, He is provoking Jesus to come down off of the cross. Now, if you want to understand this, or it shocks you to hear that Satan does not want Jesus to die if it surprises you to hear that, that the devil does not want Jesus crucified, and you want to understand what's happening here, you, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Matthew. All the way back to Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4. We were there a couple of years ago, probably four years ago, so you might not remember. But Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. He's about to be empowered for his ministry. And the voice of his Father calls down from heaven and says what? He speaks down from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Those are the words that begin Christ's ministry and set him on his earthly mission. The works of, of redemption that he goes out on that's going to end in the cross begins with, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the, by the Spirit. And he takes up the sword of the Spirit and he begins to fight against the devil himself. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Let me read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It's, it's a relatively short passage. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. 
Now the devil's quoting Scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Luke tells us, until a more opportune time, <clears throat> the angels came and were ministering to him. Three temptations. Now, if you've heard a sermon on this passage before, <clears throat> I, I used to hear sermons on this passage frequently when I was growing up, and the temptations were always these three. One, to give in to his hunger and break his fast. Two, to win the overwhelming support of the people prematurely by performing a miracle at the temple. They say that's where all of the most devout people were. If Jesus goes there and performs this miracle, everyone's going to follow him. And then three, to be made king over all the world. Those were the temptations. That's how they're often presented. It's how I always heard them. And that being the usual interpretation, it's no wonder that people do not take the cunning of our adversary seriously. Because if the best temptation he can come up with is eat a loaf of bread when you're starving, he isn't much of a force to be reckoned with, is he? And listen, those three things, food, getting the support of the people, kingdoms of the earth, those aren't the temptations at all. The serpent is far craftier than that. Well, consider the first temptation. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. It's a voluntary fast. He is starving, literally. So the devil comes to him and says, what? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You honestly believe that this temptation is about food. What kind of temptation is that? Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. He's hungry, sure. But, but listen, he could have turned every single stone in the desert into a loaf of bread, eaten a loaf of bread, and it would not have been sinful at all, would it? He had every right to turn the stones to bread. And if he did do that, eat his fill, what sin would he have committed? Where in the whole of the Bible does it say anything that would make you think breaking a 40-day fast is sinful. Nowhere. Which is why the stomach is not the point of attack. Because the temptation was never about breaking the fast. I want you to think about this. What were the last words Jesus heard before He went into the wilderness? I've said it twice already. Last words He heard. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God speaking to His Son. And the very next voice that He hears, the very next voice in the book of Matthew is the voice of the devil. And what does it say? If you are the Son of God. That's the first thing He hears, the Lord hears after God affirms it. Because that is where the attack 
is. It's not at his hunger. It's a strike at his very sonship. And the devil is, is saying to him, uh, essentially, this is, this is the word. It says, no son of God should be suffering like you are out here in the wilderness. You haven't eaten for 40 days. This isn't even how the lowest kings of earth here live. You, the Son of God, your stomach empty, your body wasting away from hunger? Jesus, you are dreadfully deceived. You're delusional if you think that your Father cares for you and that you are some Son of God. Sons of God don't go around starving in the wilderness. It's not right for you to be so uncomfortable. It's not right for your father to let you suffer this way. That's not how loving fathers treat their children, is it? No, just turn these stones into bread. Call up some of that divine power. Pray and ask your father and he'll give you bread and he'll put an end to your discomfort and he'll put an end to your suffering right this instant. If he really is your father, go ahead. Call on his name. See if you really are loved by Him. There is the temptation. If you're suffering like this, how can you really believe that you are God's own Son? No son should have to endure this. And this temptation comes to make Christ doubt. Why would my Father make me suffer in this way? Maybe I misheard the voice from heaven. Maybe I'm not... God's Son, and I don't belong to Him. You see the, the seeds of doubt being planted here? It's not right for the Son of God to suffer. Is that what beloved looks like? But over the first temptation, Christ triumphs. He is victorious. He takes up the sword of the Spirit and strikes down the accusations of the evil one. <clears throat> Men do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What does He mean? Uh, he means to say, nice try, but I know better. Bread, that's not what sustains me, but the words of my heavenly Father sustain me, and He has told me I am His Son. Suffering or not, hungry or full, palace or in the wilderness, those are not the marks of my sonship or of His love for me, but that He has given me His Word. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is as true then, it is as for all of us here in this room. Suffering and trials and wilderness are no mark of sonship for a child of God, but that you have and believe His word. The accuser is undeterred. <clears throat> he has more temptations up his sleeve. And so he mounts a second assault. The conversation continues. The word, you say, I know it well. I know it forward and backward. And I know what the Psalms say. Your Father will send His angels before you. And that because He loves you, He isn't even going to allow you to strike your foot against a stone. He'll protect you. He'll protect you from pain. God has promised that, hasn't He? It's right here in the Word. Even if you throw yourself down from the temple, would your Father let you die? 
He won't even let you accidentally be harmed by stubbing your toe. How much more will your fathers send his angels if you are in certain peril? Would he let you die? Not according to his word, he won't. He will send his angels to carry you like a feather to the ground. You see how this is a sinister attack. The word is twisted against Christ. He's reminded that the angels will protect him from all harm, and they do it no less at the command of the Father. No wounds will pierce you. No blood will be shed. You won't even stub your toe on a rock. That's how the Father cares for His Son, the Messiah. And it's as if the devil is, is planting this in his mind. Now you remember that when they nail you to the tree. You see how wicked this temptation is? When Jesus is being crucified, where are the angels protecting Him then? Where is His Father then? No son of God will ever be put to death, least of all like that. How can He be God's Son and suffer? How can He be God's Son and shed His blood? How could God let His Son be killed in such a disgraceful way? It's as if the devil says, remember that when they are leading you out to be crucified. The accuser is wicked indeed. He'd pit the Son against the Father if He were able, even twisting the Bible to His own ends. But God, but the Lord knows the Word better. And He will not put His Father to the test, not by jumping off of the temple. That's not the test. He won't put His Father to the test by doubting His Father's provision and His goodness towards Him. God, will, God has said He will always do good to me. And I can believe that I can believe that when I'm not stubbing my toe against a rock, and I can believe that when the time comes for me to be led to the cross. This is why I came, Satan. I don't need to put him to the test. And now the prince of darkness gives up all pretense. He goes directly to the one place that caused our Lord his greatest agony. This temptation, this final temptation, puts its finger on the thing that made the Lord sweat drops of blood in the garden and cry out all night over and over to His Father in heaven. In the garden, Jesus prays. What was it? Father, if there is any other way, if there is possibly, if there is any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass from me. If there was any other way to do what? What is he asking God to find another way to do? To redeem his people? To bring men and women to himself from the ends of the earth? To receive, as Psalm 2 says, his heritage, the nations? And he pleads with the Father, if there is another way to bring me the nations, you'll find it. And here, the devil comes and tempts Jesus with another way. The evil one entices him. You see all these nations? They can be yours. I can give them to you. I am the prince of this world, am I not? And they will belong to you. And you don't have to go through with that hideous thing that clouds your mind with fear and trembling. You don't have to be sacrificed. 
You don't have to bear the wrath of God or die a curse. You don't have to go to that tree. All you have to do is bow the knee to me. And all this world will belong to you. That's what I offer. Another way. A crown without a cross. There it is. A great temptation indeed. The one thing above all that Christ would give all that he had to avoid, were it possible. And the devil opens up for him a way of escape. This is a, a plan B, at least the promise of it. And the one thing, that thing that hanged over the head of our Lord like the sword of Damocles for all of his life, the, that thing waiting to pierce him, that dreadful wrath that tormented his soul day and night, the thing that filled him with anguish. And now he is offered a way of escape. Imagine you knew that your entire family would be killed and you would be helpless to prevent it. But then someone came and offered you a way out. You can stop it from happening. All you have to do is compromise just a little bit. How strong would that temptation be with the lives of your loved ones on the line? It wouldn't be as strong as this. And what happens? How does our Lord respond to this temptation? He reaches out His hand toward the offer. He takes hold of the, of the escape hatch that's being opened for Him. It's a deliverance from His greatest nightmare. And taking it in His hand, He slams it shut, decidedly shut. And He says, It is written, You shall worship God and worship Him alone. And so the devil leaves him till a more opportune time. Until Matthew 16, where the Lord makes plain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and there suffer and be killed. And when he tells them this, that he has to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to be tortured and put to death, it's too much for them to bear. The disciples are distraught. They don't know what to do. Peter stands up and says, Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. Do you remember what happens just before this passage? Just before Peter says this, the last dialogue Matthew records, the Caesarea Philippi confession. Jesus asked, Who do men say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Lord. You are the, the, the Messiah, the Son of the, of the living God. You are the Son of of God. What's the very next thing Peter says? Far be it from you, Lord, to die. Peter rebukes him. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. How can you suffer these things? It should never happen to you. You don't deserve to be treated like this. Don't even talk about it, Jesus. No Son of God should suffer and be killed. And you remember the Lord's answer to Peter. This isn't Peter speaking. Jesus has heard these words before and he looks at Peter and he looks past Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't understand. You are, you are thinking worldly. You're not having the, the concerns of the kingdom on your mind. I have come to give my life. Don't join with the devil in trying to dissuade me. Don't join with the devil in trying to convince me not to die. And don't mistake it, that's exactly what the devil is working at. 
Sometimes we very foolishly think that the devil is the one who is orchestrating the cross and, and he is the one who is conspiring to have Jesus killed and he is the one at work to bring about Jesus' death. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is the one who planned it long ago. God is the one who is orchestrating this sacrifice. God is the one who is choreographing it all. The devil is working, it seems, in Scripture with all of his might to prevent it from happening. He knows that Jesus' death will be his defeat. He remembers what God said in Genesis 3. Uh, he will, you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. He doesn't want his head crushed. He doesn't want his house to be plundered. He doesn't want the nations to be taken away and given to Christ. The last thing he wants is for Jesus to die. He wants the Lord to reject the suffering. He wants Him to reject the pain, to reject the cross, to vindicate Himself. He wants Jesus to preserve Himself and flee from the wrath of His Father against sin. He doesn't want Jesus to die. And if you were to question the Lord on the matter, hey Jesus, maybe you shouldn't go through with the cross, it would get the same rebuke as Peter did. Get behind me, Satan. Because anything that would seek to keep Jesus off of the cross comes from Him. Which brings us to our passage now. We see the devil's voice in the crowd and in the leaders. Here, a most opportune time has come. And Satan reappears. And he raises his accusations again. This is the final temptation, the final assault to undermine Christ's faith, to, to fill him with doubt and get him to come down off of the cross. What does the crowd say? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, Jesus has heard that before. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in Him. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Now the harvest for all of those seeds of doubt planted long ago has come. Now is one final effort. No son of God should have to endure this. That's ridiculous. A son of God, of the creator of the heaven and the earths, being killed in such a cruel and degrading way. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. If you're able to save others, why can't you save yourself? Why won't God save you? Your whole ministry and everything you thought you did, it was just a lie. Compounding the Lord's sorrow and, and, and adding to His conflict, you know what's about to happen? In verses 45 through, through uh, 54, the Father is about to turn His face away and totally forsake Him. He is going to be, He is going to be abandoned by His Father. How, knowing that that's what's coming, feeling it begin, you, you, you see the Lord begin to walk away, and you, you've seen it before, and someone's crying out, don't go! 
and they walk away. No help. This is happening when he is hearing these words. Where's your father now? You trust in God? You think that you belong to Him? You think you are His Son? Where is your so-called Father? Where are those angels He sent to protect you? All of it's a lie. All of it was a delusion. And now you die disgraced. But you can vindicate yourself, Jesus. Oh, yes, you can. You can come down and you can call all of those legions and they'll come to your defense. You know they will. You call on your Father, He'll come. God has abandoned you. Maybe now it's your turn to abandon Him. God has turned His back on you. Your Father is holding out on you. He has deceived you. But you can replace Him. You can fight back. You can come down from that cross and turn Jerusalem to dust and Rome to rubble and watch all these wicked men tremble when you do. If you are His Son, prove it. It's just like the garden. Has God really said? Only a million times worse. The temptation before Him comes one last time. If you're the Son of God, if you're like God, prove it. Don't, don't rely on Him to save you. Save yourself. Reach out and take hold of your salvation and come down from the cross. How steadfast is Jesus, the Son of God? Do you see His faith here? I mean, you, you understand, don't you, that He could have come down? I mean, if it were you or me, those words from the crowd, all of those insults, it would have just been ridicule and mockery. I mean, it might have made you angry, but you couldn't stop it. It might have harmed you. You wouldn't have liked it, but there was nothing you could do. <laughs> wouldn't be a temptation. Just an insult. And you wouldn't be thinking in that moment, maybe I should call down the hosts of heaven to come to my deliverance. Maybe I should just heal myself and come on down. But Jesus did. He was being provoked. He could come down. And though the scribes and the passers-by and the thieves, they didn't know it, the devil did. And he is striking at that thing most precious, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And if ever Christ is going to be provoked, it's by pushing here. I mean, you think of the restraint. How would you do? How would you fare in his position? Well, I know what you would do, and I know what I would do. We would do the same thing that Adam did, and we would fall again. And if you were to take the best of men and put them there, they would fall again. And if you were to take a million men and put them there, they would fall again. But not Jesus, because He is unconquerable. He never gives in to temptation. He never yields even for an instant, though all the powers of hell are thrown against Him here to bring Him down. And He conquers the devil. And He conquers death. And He did inherit the nations. And now He reigns from on high. He resisted all temptation and won the victory. 
How did he win the victory? It's the greatest temptation everyone has ever faced. And it is overcome by the greatest act of faith in the Bible. It's right here. Psalm 22 is on Jesus' mind. We know it is because he's going to quote it in a few more verses. And this is the scripture that, that in, in, uh, in this Psalm 22, two things are promised. Two things. One, he is going to be cursed and destroyed and surrounded and mocked and belittled. The, the soldiers are going to cast, die for, uh, cast lots for his clothes. And the other thing that this passage promises is that he will be blessedly delivered after he endures. The Messiah will be assaulted on every side. The Father himself will abandon him. But once it is accomplished, the Father will return and restore the Son and reward him handsomely through all eternity. Now how does that sustain him? How, how, does, how does his faith in the Word keep him going? Listen, it's because he is enduring exactly what was promised. The jeering of the crowd, the casting of the lots, the temptation of the devil, the cruelty of the soldiers, the forsaking of his father, all of it worked to remind him the word is true. And if it's true in the cursing, if it's true in what it says here, the evil that will befall me, then what God says about the restoration is true. And he will come for me. And he believes it even though everything he sees and feels works against him. I want you to imagine the greatest, or the most terrible and most crippling depression you have ever experienced. God seemed far off, and not only did He seem far off, He seemed against you. Your prayers seemed to come crashing back to the ground like prayers of lead. The darkness seemed inescapable and all hope gone, cut off. And now in all of that, as a Christian, in all of that, you did have hope. You really did. Your prayers did go up to heaven. The Lord had not turned His back on you. It just, as horrible as it felt, as strongly as you thought it was gone, as strongly as you believed your prayers fell, they didn't. As real as all of those terrors appeared, they were not true. They weren't real. It may be that the light of God's countenance was hidden from you like the clouds sometimes hide the sun, but the sun is still there. On this day of the Lord's crucifixion, He faced the same darkness, but His wasn't just a feeling. His prayers really did fall to the ground like lead. And his father really did turn away from him to do him harm. All hope in this moment is stripped away from Jesus and the darkness was inescapable. The father turned his face away. It wasn't like it was hidden behind the clouds. It was extinguished. And what does Jesus do? Psalm 37, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Job 13, 15, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Habakkuk 3, 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the oil fails, and the fields you have no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. 
Isaiah 50.10 Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. Let me ask you, which takes more faith? To walk along trusting in your Father when His face is shining down upon you and you're basking in the warmth of His rays and you know God is near? Or saying, I will believe You, Lord, even though I cannot perceive You at all? even though it seems like the sun has gone out and I am hopeless in this moment. Which takes more faith to trust in the Lord? I'll tell you which takes more faith. He who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the Lord and rely on his God. That takes faith. And that's the kind of faith to the most extreme degree you see exercised at the cross. And even though Christ feels nothing but the weight of wrath, and though all hope was taken away and God forsook him, tears overwhelmed him, he looks to the salvation promised. And so by faith, he endures the cross and overcomes the temptations. Christ overcomes by the promises of God. And if Christ overcomes the promises of God, and if Christ endures darkness by the promises of God, if He does it that way, what are you going to do when they inevitably come? You're not going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You have one place to turn, one promise of light, the Word and the promises of of God. And getting a vision of your Savior, seeing Him endure and overcome in this way, it will be better for you than all of the application in the world. I'd say this, one thing in closing. When you are in darkness, and when you are tempted, and when trials overwhelm you, you have the Word And you have faith. You have the example of Christ, your elder brother. And not only His example, but the Spirit of Christ in you. The Spirit of Christ that prevailed through such darkness. The Spirit of Christ that endured such temptation with victory. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you and by His strength there is nothing you may not overcome. Let's pray. Thank You for the cross and thank You for Your Son who You gave on our behalf. Thank You, Lord, that no darkness is too great and no depression so severe. Thank You, Lord, that You never lead us somewhere You have not walked through first. And not only have You walked through, but You have come out the other side victorious. You were tempted in every way, and yet victorious, Lord. Can You not lead us in the same as we walk in Your footsteps? Have You not given us Your Spirit Have You not given us the mind of Christ that we might follow in Your footsteps and not follow a path without a guide, but we have a guide. You are always near to Your people. 
You will never leave us nor forsake us. And that promise can overcome any feeling of abandonment. Lord, no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. And You are faithful. You will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But You have shown us how temptation is overcome. And You have empowered us to overcome it. And Lord, You will strengthen Your people and be with Your people. We, we never walk alone. We can say with Paul in his final moments, all have abandoned me, yet I am not alone. It is always true, Lord. And we thank You that no temptation is stronger. Lord, it is stronger than us. A million times stronger than us. And it is like a, like a lion that will tear us to pieces, our temptations. The devil roams like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But God, You are stronger than it all. And if we seek to prevail by our own strength, we will be devoured. But Lord, if we seek to persevere trusting in You and leaning on You and meditating on You and knowing You, there is the hope of victory. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would not have too high an estimation of ourselves. Seventy or eighty years is laboring 24-7 is not enough time to get the sin out of us. But Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be transformed in an instant into Your likeness from then until forever. We look forward to the day when there will be no moon and no night and no sun. Only Your countenance shining forever. When darkness is done away with for good. When there is no more death or sickness or disease. Lord, help us to press on toward the goal by trusting You and following in Your footsteps. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.